Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. I'm really excited for this conversation today. I feel like it is exactly kind of how I think about the world. So I have Mark Matusik on the show. Mark is a best-selling author, teacher, and speaker whose work focuses on personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing and self-inquiry. He brings three decades of experience as a memoirist, editor, interviewer, survivor, activist, and spiritual seeker to his penetrating and thought-provoking works with students. His workshops, classes, and mentoring have inspired thousands of people around the world to reach their artistic and spiritual goals. Mark is the award-winning author of seven books, including Sex, Death, and Enlightenment, a true story, which I might need to have you come back on and talk about. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker and O, The Oprah Magazine. His book, When Your Falling Dive, Lessons in the Art of Living, was just re-released with a new preface, and it could not be a better time when the world needs more hope and guidance. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for everybody who has supported the podcast. So there's so many ways you can support the podcast and the work that I'm doing. One, you can spread the word about the podcast. So share the podcast with someone you know, repost my anything on social media. If you are a therapist listening to the podcast and you have a client who you think would benefit, share it with them. This podcast has grown completely organically. I've never done advertising. I've never done anything to boost the podcast. It is all because of you all sharing the podcast. Other ways that you can support the podcast is through Patreon. Go to Patreon, put in Dr. Amy Robbins. You can find different tiers to support the podcast at the five, 10 or $20 level or any other denomination. And my $20 supporters do get once quarterly Zoom calls with me. They've been fabulous. Thank you so much. And I just want to point out what a difference this makes for me. Right now, the the podcast is supported by you all. And I'm so grateful. If you benefit from the podcast, if your life has shifted or changed as a result of the podcast, please help me continue to help you have on these great guests. Also follow me on Instagram, Dr. Amy Robbins. I love hearing from my listeners. And lastly, rate review and subscribe. That is super important. I also love reading the reviews. Thank you all for all of your support, for all of your love, for all of your helping to collectively raise the consciousness of this planet. I am so incredibly grateful. So can you tell us about your spiritual seeking journey? Because it's a fascinating one and and you were definitely kind of thrown off the, the I think the what we hope our life's path to be without thinking that anything is going to go wrong. Right. In a way, I feel like I've been a seeker since I was a kid because I grew up with a lot of questions that were unanswered and a lot of suffering that was unaddressed. And those, the combination of those two things really creates a seeking mentality where you're looking for, uh, you're looking for solutions. You're looking for ease to your own suffering. So the foundation for that was uh, laid when I was a very young kid But then in my late 20s, I had a life and death uh, epiphany. I was uh, diagnosed with a fatal disease. Uh, I had five years to live maximum. So I quit my job. I had a great job in New York and I I quit everything. I went to India and I became um, 
a Dharma bum for the next 10 years or so, really just waiting for the axe to fall, which it never did, strangely enough. But in now, the for those who can't see you, how old are you? Oh, I'm 65. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it, um, even though I, I survived, I, during that time, I got a very intensive introduction to Dharma, to spirituality, uh, and to self-exploration. You know, there's nothing like crisis to push you to the edge. Uh, right. And there, your values change. All of a sudden, what you need, uh, you know, transforms uh, into life or death questions, existential questioning. And what is it that uh, survives, if anything, the, uh, a, a physical body? You know, that's the first question of spirituality. If there were no mortality, there would be no spiritual seeking. The two are very intimately connected. So I was fortunate and unfortunate enough to have that experience of, of, of uh, a near-death uh, time that led me to really start inquiring deeply into questions that I hadn't explored uh, truly at, at that time. You know, being a sort of a yuppie American man, I was climbing the publishing ladder, I was doing all of that. I wasn't, I wasn't asking myself about questions of spirituality. Do you believe, so I have a few questions. When you say near-death experience, you're talking about it as um, not that you died and had that experience of transcendence that people talk about. You're talking about the fact that you could have you're, you had a fatal diagnosis, right? I had a fatal diagnosis. Okay. I was waiting for many years to go. Uh, according to my blood work, I shouldn't have been there. And something carried me through. I don't know why I never actually got sick, but I was teetering on the edge. That's what I mean by a near-death experience. It's a different kind. Uh, but no, my body never physically died. I never had, I never saw the light at the end of the tunnel. We we, we talk about both those things on here. So just want to clarify for my listeners. My other question is, do you believe that we can, can get to the place where you were without that, without that sort of existential crisis? No, I don't. In fact, I don't. And people ask me this a lot around my work, you know, well, can't I get there through joy? You know, can't I awaken through, you know, through bliss? I've never seen it happen. Uh, there mm. seems to be an inextricable link between facing our own impermanence and awakening spiritually. I don't think you can have one without the other. So do you need to actually be diagnosed with a disease? No, absolutely not. You know, you can just have a severe re recognition of your own mortality, and that can be enough to shake you up and push you to ask the kinds of questions that spiritual seekers ask. Who are we? Where do we come from? You know, where are we going? What's the purpose of all this? Uh, until we are shaken out of the status quo, we don't ordinarily ask those questions voluntarily. Mm -hmm. I like to say that most people are dragged kicking and screaming onto the spiritual path. And I really think that that uh, is true. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I just wasn't sure because for people, you don't know this, but my listeners do. My experience onto this path was a death of someone very close to me. And so that is, you know, what pushed me into this realm. This book is like, a bunch of vignettes, I guess, of people's personal experiences kind of facing their own whatever life crises. Some of it's mortality. Some of it is just life eruptions, I guess, like losses, things like that. But one of your teachers, I believe, said, I dig in one place as you were seeking. 
What does that mean as we are right now, I feel like, in on this cusp of people who are really seeking and maybe running from the place in which they are, and yet is that spiritual bypassing in some way? Or are, how? what do you think about that? It can become spiritual bypassing. It was becoming it for me. I realized that I was actually running. I was escaping rather than doing the kind of in-depth work that I needed to do, the practice that I needed to do. Uh, it was easier to go to the next workshop or go, I've got to go to India for this, or I've got to you know, I've got to seek it outside of myself. And I finally hit the wall. And, and I came across that teaching by Mayor Baba, the late great Parsi uh, spiritual teacher. He said, dig in one place. Uh, and something else that uh, I thought was funny, there was a teacher named Da Frijan who said that most spiritual seekers are narcissists in drag. I saw that because you were talking and, about like, this will ruin your, there was like several books you read or one book and you reference like this will destroy your mojo for spiritual seeking or something. You know, though, it was for me, it was good because I had gotten addicted to my my identity as a spiritual seeker. And it was always somewhere else. I was always going to find the answer, the deeper teacher, the more profound path somewhere else. And it forced me to stop. And it was a good thing for me because I needed to face things like relationship. Uh, how do you make, what is the, what is, what is right livelihood? You know, when you, when you come back from the edge of, of dying uh, and you suddenly realize, oh, I'm here now and I'm going to be here for a while, it looks like, how do I apply and integrate this stuff into my daily life? I had not done any of that. I had extreme mystical experiences, really profound experiences. And I was grateful for everything that I'd learned, but I needed now to figure out what, how do I bring it home? So what did that look like for you, especially now, like as you're talking, I'm thinking about all these people who are seeking these mystical experiences and, you know, maybe they're going to India, but also the um, up kind of the uprising in psychedelic use. Right. And so how do you how did you integrate that? What did those experiences look like in your life? Well, for me, the main one was having a relationship, was committing to a relationship, going through the pain of having a relationship, confronting shadows of my own that I had tried to spiritually bypass. Uh, it was earning a living. And how can you be in the world as an awakening person without, sac without sacrificing or compromising your values, your integrity, what really matters to you? So in my own case, that meant switching from pop journalism. Uh, I used to work uh, in the magazine world doing cultural kind of journalism to psychology and spirituality, things that really mattered to me. So I had to bring my, my work into balance with my actual values, which had changed. So for me, that was the, that was part of it, but it was really the emotional, it was really the intimacy stuff and realizing that there was a I used to feel like it was a kind of a fire around my heart, a kind of a ring of flame, fire around my heart that I just wouldn't let anybody in. I couldn't because there was too much damage in my early life and I hadn't done the work to see what that really was, how it was changing me, uh, how it was also creating a lot of magical thinking around spirituality. I, I realized few years into being a seeker that I had this ulterior motive for seeking, which was if I can awaken, I won't feel pain anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I thought that that was going to be, wasn't that the deal? Well, au contraire, you know, you feel more pain even as right. you feel more joy. Yeah. I've had that actual experience, particularly around doing this podcast, which does have a focus on death. 
And that in some way, in me talking about death, do people think that then means that I'm not like that, that would circumvent my, the pain of dying, (laughs) or it's actually not the pain of dying. It's the pain of, for me, of losing someone I love, you know, my kids seems like the worst possibility. And, and just thinking about that, that you're absolutely right. It does not minimize. It actually makes it, 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 it um, exacerbates it. And for a lot of people, that's really scary to feel more deeply. Yeah, it's true. And unsafe. Absolutely. No, absolutely true. What it does do exposing yourself to mortality, the idea of death, just entertaining the possibility that someday it might happen to you. Uh, it will. It will. <laughs> I'm, I'm being ironic. It, <laughs> it inoculates you. And, and the more you expose yourself to it, the less shocking the idea of your own, in, in more, in your own mortality becomes. Mm-hmm. And I think that really does serve a purpose. So uh, while it's not taking your pain away by doing this podcast, I dare say that the more you are, you immerse yourself in it, you share with other people, you're, there's more courageous you become in yourself and and more and the wiser in terms of confronting your own you know your own fragilities and vulnerabilities well and i think too the more able i find myself the more comfortable i am not only talking with patients about death but also people who have lost loved ones in everyday life where it tends to be that you shy away from that you don't want to discuss their dead whomever because they're going to remember that person as if they've somehow forgotten. As if they've somehow forgotten. Right. Uh, it's, it's like saying, I don't want to talk to a dying person about death because I don't want to scare them. You know, as if they're not actually already dealing. Right. It's not on their mind. They're thinking yeah. about, you know, what they're going to have for dinner tonight. Right. So you worked, you've worked with so many people over the years. What do you find to be the most common story we sort of tell ourselves that keeps us stuck? Or is there one? Well, I'd have to say the old victim story, the archetypal victim story, which has a a million different iterations and manifestations. But the idea that life is somehow happening to us, that we are at the effect of life, that we are stuck with our circumstances, that our circumstances define the quality of our lives, just that whole passive way of looking at life uh, is um, something that I come across all the time with students and certainly with people in the book. There were people in the book who, before they had had a catastrophe, a real disaster, had lived lives that had a lot of self-pity in them. Mm -hmm. But after they went through something, life and death, the self-pity wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's because they were now grateful for their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the deep lessons that I've learned personally and also with people I've I've spoken to is that gratitude really is the antidote to self-pity. You can't feel that both at the same time. So when I catch myself feeling sorry for myself for whatever reason, uh, a moment of, of just being glad to be here. Uh, which which I am fun, you know, fundamentally uh, balances it out. Uh, and, and I can't kind of, I can't believe my own woe is me story. So what if someone is feeling like they really aren't glad to be here? Is it just finding some small anything they're grateful for? Like the sun on my face feels really good today. Or I'm saying that as I'm looking at the sun kind of blaring into my room. Um, is it, is it that simple? Cause I, I guess, how do we not fake that 
gratitude. Right. And no, I would, that's not what I would do with someone I was, I was working with said that said, I am really not glad to be here. I don't appreciate my life. I would rather not be gone. I would want to go with them into the reasons why, mm-hmm. you know, what are the stories that are supporting that? Mm-hmm. Why would it be easier to not be here than it is to be here? That's a great question to start with. Mm-hmm. And if you explore that question, you're going to see very clearly why, you know, where their life force is going, uh, why they have one foot, you know, on the other side. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people don't realize why, why they don't feel joie de vivre, why they don't feel um, happy, glad to be alive. They realize there are actual stories going on, there are narratives going on that are keeping them in a kind of a delusion. And that if they look beyond those narratives, they explore them sufficiently, they realize they are glad to be here. They're just anxious or freaked out or afraid of something or feeling terrible dread or shame. There are reasons for this. And, and so the... Uh, the uh, the affect, I guess you could say, or the end result is I don't want to be here. But behind that, there are all kinds of things to be explored that can free us up of, from that uh, from that kind of depression. So you use um, writing to awaken. That's your self examination process. And you say when you tell the truth, your when you tell the truth, your story changes. When your story changes, your life is transformed. Can you take us through what that, I mean, I know this is not a five minute process, but what that process typically looks like and how you help people change the story that they're telling themselves. Sure. Well, when I say tell the truth, it's not something that we often do. You know, we go through our lives most of the time covering up a large part of what is true for us, uh, for, toward ourselves as well as other people. So that first step of telling the truth as you know it today in this moment, not the ultimate truth just your messy, human, contradictory truth. Uh, When you begin to tell the truth, your story, your narrative about who you are and what your experience is all about shifts. Uh, And when the narrative shifts and the perspective shifts, uh, your life is necessarily changed as well. And the the way that we do that is to go into the, go directly to the places where people are not being truthful where they are folded, where they're inauthentic, where, they, where they're shrinking to fit, where they're just not really showing up or feeling seen or, or, um, or loved or accepted. Mm-hmm. So we start there. So looking at the obstacles to self-love, the obstacles to self-acceptance. And that, that's how you start to turn the soil and then you find all kinds of stuff in there. And you do this in workshops? I do. I do, I, I do live workshops. I do online classes. I work one-on-one with people. Yes. So is there a lesson from this book that most resonated with you? Yes, I would say the, the overarching universal that everybody I spoke to and my, as well as myself had in common is the simple, obvious truth that if you're not willing to change, if you're not willing to let go, of what has been and lean into the unknown. No, you don't transform through crisis. You, you become the victim of your own catastrophes, you know, and the victim of your circumstances. If you're willing to change, however, and do things differently and consider your life you know, through a different lens, uh, then all kinds of, of surprises and awakenings are possible. 
Mm -hmm. Whether or not your external circumstances change, that's really important. Mm -hmm. You know, it's possible to be healed without being cured. And that, that goes not only for a a physical illness, but, uh, but a, a life situation as well. You can, for example, be in a very painful life situation. Let's say you're caring for an elderly parent, you know, and you have a husband or a spouse who's not well, and you're caught in the middle, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's possible to heal within that situation without curing either of them. Uh, And that's, Mm -hmm. that has to do with really being in touch with our own uh, deep process, our grief, uh, and, and opening, using our pain to open instead of close. So you've seen that, I'm sure, with your patients, people who can be in extremis and so open. There's so much love. There's so much light coming out of these people. It's possible to heal without being cured. With your illness, do they know how, does anybody know, can anybody explain what happened? How you healed? Well, I, there um, were treatments that finally came around in the mid nineties for my illness. So it became a sustainable, a sustainable condition as opposed to a fatal disease. Got it. Okay. Um, Okay. So in the book, you also talk about original blessings and this quote caught my eye. It was by Abraham Heschel. People today are shocked by the weakness of our awe, but also by the weakness of our shock. Yeah. How, I had so many thoughts about this, just given where we are in society today. Yeah. How we expect in some ways to be able to have joy without feeling pain, this sort of paralleled that to me. But how do you see this? today in terms of the importance of being able to experience awe? It's hugely important. It's a part of our survival repertoire, actually, as human beings. It's what enables us to transcend uh, and have have vision uh, and have spiritual connection. Awe is inherent to that. And the level of cynicism in our age and, and darkness and skepticism conspire against feeling awe. Uh, And we also live in a reductive culture. People are always trying to pathologize everything, reduce everything. So people have a hard time feeling genuine wonder, unabashed wonder. Uh, And so that is closely connected to to depression and to to lower uh, levels of well-being. Uh, And so we are shocked by the by the weakness of our awe. You know, that, that we forget that we're spinning on this piece of rock in the middle of this unimaginable galaxy. Instead, we, we get closed into the same old, same old little conditioned reality. So we're, we forget how extraordinary this experience is. Constantly, we're forgetting it. Uh, and then we are also shocked by the fact that we tolerate living at that level of, of um, I guess, reduction and shrinking of this extraordinary experience into such a a small selfish little bundle, you know, Mm. of personal concerns. And and so we, we were so locked into our ego minds and so locked into our small minds that we lose touch with what is. And Mm -hmm. that's what spiritual practice is. It's simply opening the door and saying, 
remember that while it's true that there is pain and there's suffering and we need obviously to be tender toward ourselves and have mercy, it's not the end of the story. It's, it's, a, it's one part of a much, much, much larger story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, there's so many things throughout the day that are awe-inspiring right? that, yes. we, that we don't even notice. I mean, it's fall. We're recording this. The yeah. leaves are changing. It's the most miraculous, beautiful thing. It happens every year, but every year when it happens, right? People like flock to places to watch this, the sunset or the sunrise, the same thing. You know, people yes. clap for this experience that they that happens every single day as if it's like earth putting on a show one time. And it's like, these things are happening constantly. Constantly. A girlfriend of mine had a profound experience with this uh, when she had cancer and she was in her bed. She had stage 3.5 cancer and it didn't look good. And she was lying, she was having chemotherapy, she was lying in the hospital bed, and she saw this tree outside her window. And it was winter, it was, hadn't, didn't have beautiful leaves, but she got in, absolutely uh, entranced by this tree. She realized she had never actually seen a tree before in quite the same way. And she felt this connection, this aliveness. Uh, it changed her life profoundly. Not only did she heal from the cancer, but she left New York. She moved to the country. Now she wants to be in the forest. And she's just, it's, it's changed her deeply. But she had to lose everything before that could happen. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be pushed outside our comfort zones in some way. And that's what spiritual practice does. So if you sit down on your meditation cushion and you shut your eyes and you sit, you're really going to the edge. You're really looking at your life bare, uh, right, you know, transparently. And that in itself is an awakening. Experience. When I can get past the grocery list. The, gro- <laughs> the grocery list and what's going on in your head. Right. It's always like, oh, come on. Can we, like, anytime yeah. I sit in meditation, I'm like, can we just, like, get to the good part, please? Like, <laughs> I know my mind needs to settle and it needs to do all these things. But, like, can I just jump that? Grocery lists, what we're having for dinner, you know, did I forget to pick up one of my children today or drop them off or whatever it is? Oh, okay. So I want to pose this, this question that one of your teachers, whose name I'm going to maybe not get right, Saki, is it Saki? Saki, the stress guru, Saki Santorelli. Uh, posed to you I think it was to you which I thought was fascinating because I answered it and then I was like well do you go through the mountain or around the mountain (laughs) I'm just going to take a moment for everybody to answer that question in their own mind and can you share with us his his teaching on this his or her is her there? Yes, Saki. Okay. He's, he's a wonderful, a wonderful doctor, wonderful teacher. He's uh, he worked with John Cabot Zinn. They run the mindfulness-based stress reduction clinic up in Massachusetts together. Uh, and he was talking about our normal way as willful, you know, willful ego-driven uh, human beings to want to bore through our obstacles uh, and confront and be and aggress. Uh, instead of taking the path around the mountain, which will take us to the same place, only we won't 
be bloodied and we won't be exhausted mm-hmm. and we won't have to go through that kind of stress. And, and that is a huge lesson for us in a culture that's all about push. It's all about get through it, uh, as opposed to you know, fi- fi- finding the path of least resistance, which sometimes is, is, is going around it and gives us uh, it's so much more uh, graceful uh, and, it's, and it's less aggressive and it doesn't take nearly as much effort. So that's, that's what Saki was talking about. Mm-hmm. And some people would say that's like anti, in some ways, that's very anti-Western. What yes, we've been taught is, from the Western. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's, it's not the, the patriarchal way, you could say, mm-hmm. to kind of blast our way through. We're, in, we're taught to do that. We're taught to you know, make our will felt. And you see it in the environmental crisis that we have today. You know, there, there has been very little going around the mountain. You know, things that have been built have been in spite of nature, not in concert with nature or in respect with nature. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, that's our major problem here. We're not living in concert. We're not living in respect with our environment, nor with one another. Mm-hmm. If we weren't, we wouldn't be, you know, going through people to get what we want. We'd be saying, how can we do this together? Uh, and that's, that's not our way. Right. I don't know who I spoke to. It was a while ago where I was talking about the earth and, you know, our destruction of it. And, and this person said, you know, mother nature will figure out how to kind of dispel <laughs> people, humans, That's right. if needed. That's and right. it's, you know, we see this happening and we're ignoring it, but the, the, the planet ultimately could be okay as humans. We might not, we won't survive, but the, the planet, planet going, will. the planet is going to be fine until it gets hit by an asteroid or, or the, or the sun burns out. Earth is going to be fine. We're the problem. You know, we're mm-hmm. the problem and we are, the problem is ours. It's self-created. And who knows what the human future looks like? I'm not worried about planet Earth. She will mend. She has survived. Gaia has survived a lot of, you know, a lot of destruction. Mm-hmm. This is our, our grave that we're digging here. It's, right. and, and, and the surreal thing is that we know it. We see it. We see the evidence. We know the proof. And yet somehow we have this human capacity for denial that helps us kind of go you know, keep going in our, you know, one day at a time. And well, what am I going to do about it? Or the underlying message, which people don't talk about a lot, which is we're not going to be here anyway. You know, speaking of this is a show about life and death. I am completely convinced that many of the people who are making, uh, you know, making laws and, and passing, doing policy are lackadaisical because they're not going to be here. It just doesn't affect them personally. And At least sounds, in this life, perhaps, in, this li- right. in, this, in this life. And so right. it sounds very cold to say, but I'm convinced that plays into it. Mm-hmm. That's why when you hear Greta Thunberg, you know, that wonderful young activist say, furious that you're leaving us with this problem that's not going to be yours. I completely, un- I completely get it. And she's right. Mm-hmm. Our belief that doing nothing is better than doing something whatever that something is for one person to do you know that that matters that one little thing whatever it is for each and every one of us matters and i think it matters as much to us as it does to the planet 
Because when I choose, even gritting my teeth, when I choose to recycle and wash my recycling and not, you know, kind of succumb to the desire to just throw it all in the trash together, I, I gain self-respect. I feel better about myself. I feel, I feel more in my own integrity. Is that going to save the planet? No. And there's a lot of evidence now that things go just into a big landfill. So, so the, how much gets recycled is even questionable. Right. That's not the point. The point is how I feel about myself. I feel more respectable, more responsible, and more aware of what I'm using and how I'm using it. Now, the well, next step is to, excuse me, the next step then yeah. is to actually change how you, what you're using and how you, how you live, which is, right. you know, which is an ongoing practice. Well, and it's a consciousness experiment, right? I mean, I think that what we, I started composting. I, um, there's a company, I live in Chicago that comes and picks up a bucket every week of your stuff, your compost. Um, And when I switched to that, I was so awed, awed, (laughs) in awe, in awe of how much food waste I had been throwing away. And so then I was like, oh my God. And now I'm much more conscious. I mean, everything that's not trash goes basically can go in the compost, anything. And it's cut down our trash tremendously. Now, is my little bucket a week going to make a difference? I don't know, but it's certainly not going into a, a landfill. And so though it's like these these little things that one make you more conscious and aware, yeah, two make you feel like you're doing something to help. That's really the point. You feel like you're on the side of healing and you're, you're on the side of progress and it feels healing to do it because, you know, the other requires a kind of shutting down and denial that is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. When I put my, my metal in my trash can, uh, as opposed to um, recycling it, I feel badly. I feel lazy. I feel angry at myself. I mean, it sounds exaggerated, but there are real, those are real feelings. And I do think that what we feel and what we think affects our quality of life and uh, how, and our, our presence. Well, and I feel like what you're talking about and what I often talk about is just this process of raising your consciousness and your awareness. And so exactly as you were describing, that is what that has done for you. It's what it's done for me. and you then feel, you feel the pain in some way, right? When you throw something away that shouldn't be, but you also feel the joy of experiencing doing good, even if it's on a small scale. Exactly. And then it becomes a spiritual practice like everything else, because on a day, let's say that I don't um, recycle, that's great spiritual grist for the mill. What's going on? How am I tuning out? Where am I? Um, where am I uh, lying to myself? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the stories I use to justify my own you know, my inconsistency? This is all great uh, material for self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. So as a writing teacher, what I say is explore those questions because those questions really take you to the heart of what you care about and your the quality of your of your consciousness. Well, and I think it's so great how you put that just now because it does allow for people to just be introspective in simple ways. It yes. doesn't, this isn't complicated. We overcomplicate this. It's not any more complicated than 
sitting on a meditation cushion by yourself. You could say, well, that's not changing the world. That's not doing anything. But that is the most profound thing you can do is whether it's meditation or something else. That act of self-knowledge liberates the world. You know, it's not, you know, the cliche, you are the world. We are. Mm-hmm. And so when I change myself, I am changing the world. That's all I have control over. I right. can't control, I can't change anyone else. Uh, and the hopes of making large scale external change are nil for any of us. But that's not the point. Mm-hmm. You know, if the point is to know ourselves and to awaken in every single thing that we do are all of our choices and the thoughts that we think, the feelings that we feel are, are part of that awakening if we you know, start to pay attention. That's when life gets interesting. So can we do a quick speed round? Sure. Okay. Um, spirituality means? Opening to the unseen and knowing that all things are one. What is something most people don't know about you? that I am quite shy and have struggled with a lot of social anxiety in my life. Hmm. What is one thing you are looking forward to right now? Moving to a place that is less expensive than East Hampton, New York. Do you have a plan for where that will be? (laughs) I'm just putting it out in the universe. Okay. You'll have to keep us posted. Uh, What is one thing you are deeply grateful for right now? I'm genuinely grateful that I'm here talking to you and that I feel good today and there's love in my life. That's beautiful and very present. What book is on your nightstand? Right now I'm reading, uh, it's called The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been on my list for a long time. How is it? It's good. If you like reading fiction before you go to sleep, which I do, uh, it's a book you can just fall into. It's 600 pages long. Yeah, I heard it's a long one. I think that's what kept me away from it. It's very long, but the characters are beautifully drawn and she writes beautifully. What's your favorite spiritual or healing practice? I love listening to satsang in the afternoon. I listen every day. I take a meditation break in the afternoon and I listen to a talk uh, from some from a wise, a wise one. Huh. Uh, today with YouTube, it's so extraordinary that I can listen to Pema Chodron. I can listen to, to Mother Mirror. I can listen to any teacher almost that I want to. To me is just the most wild thing. Speaking of awe, the fact that we have access, that I can go and I can watch, I can watch, you know, video of Sir Thomas Keating or some of these great, great teachers. It, to me, is, is, is an incredible joy. Mm-hmm. What do you believe happens when we die? I have no idea. I haven't the, the vaguest idea what happens. I know what I've read. I've interviewed lots of people who have gone to the other side and come back. I've spoken to lots of, you know, even Alexander, you know, James Rediger, all kinds of people who have, but personally, I don't know. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I just, I I couldn't possibly know, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Not too soon. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to learn about you, your work, what you're up to, 
Where can they find? They can find you now in the East Hampton, but maybe not forever, right? <laughs> well, they can find me on my website, markmatusic.com, or check out theseekersforum.com, which is my online self-inquiry community where we do a weekly writing group. I guide people in a writing practice every week. It's a wonderful community, international, uh, and we'd love to have you. So that's theseekersforum.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for this really enlightening conversation that I'm sure people will take little nuggets away that they can uh, apply in their in their life. So thank you. Thank you, Amy. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.